People, welcome to Prometically Laid Bear, the podcast. My guest today is Vindi Banga, who is a partner at Clayton Dubilier and Rice. And with him, I want to understand what is it that practically firms bring to the table when they are controlling a business. And I thought it may be most interesting if we think about it with uh, a case study, which is basically the COVID crisis, and see what is it that these firms did different, special during the COVID pandemic with their portfolio companies. Uh, thank you, Ludo. It's a pleasure to be with you and everybody else today. Um, what did private equity firms do well during the COVID crisis? Ludo, I, I think I would like to answer this really from the perspective of my own experience as an operating partner in my firm. It's hard to speak for the industry. Um, I must say nobody could have anticipated the kind of challenges we have all collectively seen in the business world in the last 12 months. I have to say that um, all credit to our leadership teams that most of our portfolio companies, and we have about 35, grew earnings in 2020 over the prior year, 2019, and more than half actually achieved their original annual budget. Now, how did they do this? How did this happen? I think there are a, a, a bunch of reasons for that. I think the first and most important thing is that we entered the crisis with what I would describe as a good quality portfolio. You know, we only invest in businesses that are either number one or number two in their chosen area of market segment or uh, uh, opportunity. Uh, secondly, we typically back strong leadership teams. And wherever we feel the leadership is, is for whatever reason needs to be strengthened, then we try and do that very early in the investment phase itself. Now, what did these teams actually do through this COVID crisis? I think the first priority in the first few weeks was to ensure safety and liquidity. Safety for all our employees and customers and consumers, this was paramount. How do you run your factories safely? You had to think very hard about those sorts of things. How do you organize shifts? How do you make sure your workers are safe? In terms of retail businesses, wherever they were open, how do you keep your customers as safe as possible? So safety was a very important aspect. But Vindi, if like any any business did that too, right? So what was unique? Was there something unique to private equity in the ability to 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 keep people safe? Or no, I, I don't think so. I I think every responsible business probably did that. Okay. Liquidity was another aspect that we looked at very early on. We had to make sure we have enough cash to actually see through the crisis. So we looked away at all our companies and said, look, can we look through the next twelve to twenty-four months? Can we make sure we pay the rent, we pay the salaries, etc.? In some cases, we had to mothball some parts of companies, stop some companies, and all of that. So we did that. Sorry, on, on this one. So again, I'm trying to see what is unique to private equity. So would you say that in a private equity setting, usually people are more proactive in terms of planning? Uh, they are more used to look at cash management than other companies, maybe because they are used to operate under high leverage. And so the cash management is kind of a, a well-oiled function, which may not be the case in other companies. Or or was it just, you know, again, not just normal, like all the businesses looked at whether they could pay rent, right? 
I think with private equity, I would say one thing that, you know, there's a lot of focus on cash. I mean, that is absolutely critical. Every time we make an investment, we are very, very thoughtful about our cash flow, our cash uh, analysis and so on. There's a very good amount of focus on, on cash, which perhaps exists in the best of public companies, but certainly not in all the public companies that I'm aware of. So the second thing I'd say is within a few months, couple of months, all the operating skills come into play in private equity. And we move very quickly to take cost reduction. Now, some of this cost reduction uh, is stuff that uh, was temporary. Some of it is more structural and actually will stay right through the crisis and is giving us much higher operating leverage today. I think we move very quickly to adopt new technologies to create efficiencies, either in the supply chain or in terms of customer acquisition, all of that. At the same time, we were very focused on growth. How are we going to restart our businesses where we close them? How quickly can you get back into gear? How can you innovate to meet the needs of, uh, let's say, uh, uh, COVID? For example, we had a pizza business, which very quickly pivoted into curbside activities. If you can't open your store and you can't have people come in, how can you serve them at the curb? Speed, I think, is really important. And that is one factor which probably distinguishes uh, most private equity firms. And certainly in our firm, I find, felt that our people moved with extraordinary speed. And what, why do you think it is that other businesses do not have this kind of sense of urgency or speed of execution and and because whenever like 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 as you speak now it, it sounds to me just like as normal management like proper management what management should be um and so i'm 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 perhaps more puzzled by the fact that the other people don't do that right or non-private equity do, don't do that so I, what, I think, what one think? Of the, i think ludo one of the things that i've seen is that in private equity when you make an investment you have a defined period of about five or six years in which you have to deliver a significant step change in value creation. So you're very focused on time. There is a lot of focus on speed of action and time. You can't lose any time because if you lose it, you've lost a big chunk out of that five, six years. So I think certainly speed, I would say private equity firms tend to move with greater speed. A second yeah. factor that facilitates that is that either you have one shareholder or a handful of shareholders. And therefore, when you want to take swift change action, you can usually align very quickly around the course of action and then focus on implementing. That's right. Um, one other thing I'd say that we did at that time is we began to focus quickly on acquisition opportunities. Now, we had strong balance sheets for most of our companies. We have capital. And at a time like this, it's really important to double down and see how you can emerge from the crisis much stronger. And therefore, yeah. we made several follow-on investments last year itself. I was going to bring this up because another advantage uh, that people usually think is unique to private equity is the access to the capital market, access to cash, right? So when there is a crisis, like it was in 2008, it private equity usually, usually have a lot of lines of credits put on, on business that they can draw upon uh, in case there is a problem. And here there was a problem. Um, and they have their own funds they can draw from their limited partners pretty quickly. And so they can easily acquire some other businesses and, and the like. So 
would you say that there were some opportunistic acquisitions during the crisis when like you gave the example of your pizza shop um you could have acquired quite a few pizzerias during the crisis because a number of them were, were struggling yeah. hard but I, I i didn't see that many you know strategic or opportunistic acquisitions during the crisis of competitors by practically owned businesses but ha have you seen some well actually i i'll tell you that uh, and i'll dimensionalize it this way prior to the crisis we were investing about two billion dollars a year on average out of a 10 billion dollar fund in the last year we have 12 months from now since march 20 we have invested five and a half billion dollars okay so you have and accelerated your drawdowns pretty quickly really accelerated and that's because when there is dislocation of the scale that there was in in the whole environment business environment uh, businesses you know come under challenge and our job is we can actually provide solution capital as you were saying people need capital we can provide solution capital but we do more than that because we bring with that solution capital operating capability and operating experience so i'll give you three different types of examples uh, of new investments that we made in the last 12 months the first was a set of firms needing liquidity right so we own a leading furniture retailer in france called butte uh, there was another furniture Good luck with that one <laughs> we're there it's, I know them well. I know them very well. I bought stuff there. Oh, really? Well, good. I'm glad with that. Now, there's another furniture retailer in France, Conforama, which is part yeah. of the Steinhoff Group. And they I were in trouble. why they were not merged together, these two guys. But yeah. But there we are. So we stepped in. This business was going into administration. And we've actually acquired Conforama. We know the industry well. We see an opportunity not just to place our capital but actually an opportunity to improve its operating margin, in particular through improving the supply chain. So that's one example. Well, so Another, I, we, we may, so I, I may take you on, on this one to do like a special session on Butte and Conforama because I would be very, very curious to see how they could compete ever against IKEA. That would be like, we would need a special session on that one. I'm happy to do that. Actually, uh, I find that, you know, Butte is a fascinating company and it's doing very well, actually, in the period that we've been associated with it. Mm -hmm. If I give you another example, uh, there was a food service business in Florida, which was facing a liquidity challenge during the first lockdown. Right? They had high leverage. Uh, they had liquidity issues. We understand the food service industry very well. We've invested in it for years. So we knew the industry is going to come back. And therefore, we were able to invest with a convertible preferred security. And sure enough, the business is doing very well right now. So solving the liquidity question for companies was one source of opportunity. Another source was companies looking for transformational growth and looking for either capital or partners to help them. And here again, you know, I can give you a couple of examples. We invested in a pharmaceutical services platform called Huntsworth. This is a company that helps commercialize new drugs. And we've been able to inject capital, but actually add growth funds and help it to grow faster. Radio Systems is another business in the pet protection, pet care product business in the US. And again, you know, they were doing very well. But what we've been able to do is to give them fresh capital and fresh growth avenues.
So I think that's the second area, which is companies looking for transformational growth. The third source of investment opportunity in the last 12 months has been carve outs. Now, a lot of companies, global businesses have had to reprioritize their portfolios and divest their non-core operations. In the UK, private equity firms have completed more than 10 billion of carve out transactions last year. And that is up from less than a billion in the previous year. So you can see that a lot of companies are trying to churn their portfolios. One example, for instance, in the UK that we acquired was a you know, business called Wolseley, which is a, a plumbing and heating distribution business, which was carved out of Ferguson. So there were these three sources of opportunity for us to deploy additional capital uh, needs of liquidity, uh, you, uh, uh, looking out for transformational growth and carve outs. Uh, you're on mute, Ludo. So I guess that's a question from uh, Sanjay, who was asking uh, uh, where where were the, the focus sectors and geographies in, uh, and Sanjay was uh, emailing us from, from Mumbai. Um, we have two uh, other questions, uh, one from Ned uh, in Oxford, which is a bit difficult. I think we, the answer will be we don't know. Um, but the question was, do we have any proof yet that privately owned companies have performed better than others? Um, during uh, this, this, this COVID crisis. I think we, in terms of academic research, we, ju we just barely got some answers about how they did during the 2008 crisis. So I think we will have to wait another 10 years to have an answer to your question, Ned. Uh, but maybe, Vindi, do you, do you have something uh, about this? You have observed only your portfolio, but... Well, I have observed our portfolio. And as I said, uh, right at the beginning, that our portfolio has performed remarkably well through this crisis uh, in a very agile manner. Uh, but I'm aware that there are several studies that have actually shown that at times of distress, private equity firms tend to do better than public market firms. And, and I think there is good reason for it. As we were discussing, um, at times of stress like this, you need agility. Agility is very important, speed of action. And I do believe that private equity firms have an inherent advantage in terms of being able to move very, very fast. And that's because uh, they either have only a single or a very small group of shareholders. Typically, those shareholders tend to be very close to the company. They're very engaged with the company. They tend to know the, the strategy of the business and the operations of the business very well. And therefore, they're able to quickly align with management and, and take swifter action. Yeah, so we, we're talking in a sec about the, 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 the management, just to, to bring up the academic study that looked at 2008 crisis, um, the most evidence we have is by George Lerner and his co-authors, and they found that indeed it looks like they failed better, the private equity companies, especially in 2008, 2010, because of the access, mainly because of the access to capital of private equity, that they can then uh, could do some strategic acquisitions uh, uh, and the like. Uh, I saw as well that uh, I always try to avoid uh, a jargon or to specify it. So somebody uh, in LinkedIn is asking us to specify what a carve out is. It simply means that when you have a company that has different divisions, they are selling one division uh, away to private equity. So they are carving out one of their divisions. So it's as if uh, Oxford University was carving out the business school and we will become independent and, and, and fly mm -hmm. with our own wings uh, under the protection okay. of no, no, no. private equity firm. 
Ludo, I might just add one thing. I think um, uh, I, I haven't seen the study you mentioned, uh, but I, I, I can understand that. I do believe also that uh, uh, I've seen another study, and this was McKinsey, uh, which basically shows that in recession era vintages, you know, those firms that have deep operating skills tend to do better. Uh, and again, one would understand why that would be the case. Yeah. There was another question from uh, Sovinar, which brings me to the management that you just mentioned. Um, she's asking about, you know, to talk about the change in management in particularly on firms. So again, there are some studies there showing that it's not it's not that often that they change management, but they change it quite often. And it's usually at the beginning. It's not so much during the life. It's, it's, it's pretty rare that they fire management. It's like they, they acquire a company and I think it's one time in three, then they just change the management at inception and usually stick to the management team. Um, any uh, uh, experience you want to share on, on changing the management and, and the role of management? Sure. Well, look, I think actually uh, that, that's probably the most important decision that you have to make, the team that you have on the playing field. Uh, and that's a very important part of our diligence uh, exercise. And as I said right in the beginning, we prefer to back really strong management teams. Now, uh, where that is not the case, then it's really important to try and put in the team as quickly as possible. Because as we said, we have a defined hold period of five or six years and you don't want to lose time with a team that you're not particularly confident of. So that's a very important priority. I think one of the things that I would uh, probably here differentiate again with public companies, in public companies, you tend to uh, appoint the leader and then the leader tends to appoint everybody else. I think in the private equity business, you need to get the whole football team on the playing field on day zero. Yeah. The day you yeah, invest. that's a big difference. I've noticed that. A yeah, big difference. And therefore, we would actually support our leadership in quickly filling the gaps. You know, our operating partners have wide networks in different industries. And we want to make sure that the whole field is covered with top talent as quickly as possible. Now, you asked about change of management during the investment phase as well, apart from the start. Um, uh, that does happen. And there are some cases where we need to do that. You know, what tends to be is sometimes uh, the job to be done or the, the focus changes during the period of an investment. Let me give you an example. There may be some people who are extraordinarily good managers in the first phase when the company is private. But when you're preparing a company, for instance, to exit into public markets, you need a certain repertoire of skills and you may need a different manager or leader at that point in time. And if that is the case, then we would make the change. Yeah, actually, something that has uh, always puzzled me um, is, is this narrative and, and, and you use these words. And, and when I read prospectuses from Proactivity, they, they often say that we invest only in the number one, number two in the sector, in the best management teams and so on. Actually, my prior would be like that the opposite would be better because if you invest only in the, like the number one, number two in the best management team, there's not much value you can add. There's not much you can bring because these companies are doing fine. So you would pay you know, a pretty high price for them. There's not much margin to improve things. You, I, I would have expected that if you have special skills, you, you buy the laggers and then you make them winners. Uh, but I never hear the narrative. Well, I tell you one thing, if you buy companies that are typically doing very well, it's unlikely that you can buy them at an affordable price. And therefore, your ingoing valuation would be very, very high. And I think that uh, when we invest, we actually try to invest in businesses 
which we can bring something to as operators. In fact, more than two thirds of our investments have been done in partnership, either with a seller or a buyer. And that's because they realize that actually we bring something unique to that particular business at that point in time. I mean, throughout our last couple of funds, our investment in going valuations have been a turn less than the industry for that reason. Yeah. Um, we are getting uh, a question on, 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 on a slightly different topic. There are two questions of, of that type. I'm going to take the one from Marina in, in uh, Singapore, Marine Wang. Um, she's asking basically where to invest. So that's, that's a question for you. I would have no clue. Uh, it, you know, any particular vertical markets uh, that would be interesting targets post the pandemic? Uh, and also, will COVID change the value creation methodology? So that's a really good question. I would start by saying where not to invest. I think it's very simple. You should not try to invest in an area that you don't understand or don't know. And that is why our firm is organized in verticals. We focus on certain vertical areas. We focus on consumer and retail. We focus on certain aspects of industrials. We focus on the healthcare sector. We focus on certain aspects of business services and we focus on certain aspects of technology services. And when we see investments outside that space, we are very, very cautious. So I think it's really important not to extend yourself beyond your own understanding and your own knowledge base. Now, different PE firms have different focus areas. Some people would feel very comfortable investing in a particular category where others would not. So Pick your spot. I think pick what you know. And from our point of view, it's where we have operating partners and operating advisors and teams that really understand that domain. Okay, we have a question from Cambodia uh, asking about what was the impact uh, on your fundraising efforts and exit strategy? So actually, it's quite interesting you asked that question. Uh, uh, last year, in the midst of this entire COVID crisis, as I said, we stepped up our investment rate and deployed uh, $5.5 billion, which is more than double what we do normally prior to that. But in the same year, we also raised our 11th fund, which was $16 billion. And that fund, again, we raised through you know these sorts of Zoom meetings and so on and so forth. So we were yeah. able to raise funds. This was certainly an innovation. People, people didn't think they, need, they could raise funds via Zoom, right? Uh, although, uh, You've gone on mute, Ludo. L Ludo, you're on mute. Still. I, I, I am not the one controlling that. So sorry. Um, so 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 yeah. What I hear on the ground, however, is that it's easier for firms like yours to have fundraised on Zoom because people already know you, so they don't need to like come and inspect you in a sense, right? Or or, or, or do too much. Like for first-time funds, it's it's a nightmare to raise via via Zoom. Um, so uh, for you, it was probably a bit easier. But nonetheless, it seems to be. Do you think it's, it's there to change because because it was a huge tax on people like like you to instead of you know spending time helping companies you flying around the world to meet investors was pretty taxing right? 
You know, it's part of the job. I think uh, in, in private equity, you have to invest, you have to deliver a return. And by the way, it's only when you deliver a successful return that you can raise your next fund. So it's part of the cycle. Uh, and we are used to doing that. All of us, of course, we have a specialist investor relations team and group that does that. Uh, but all of us chip in and help uh, where we can and are deployed to, to meet our investors, to explain our investing philosophy, to tell them about what we are doing and, and hopefully raise more money. So we're all part of that effort. Uh, can this work through Zoom? Look, I think that's a much broader question. Uh, it's not just about raising funds. I think that what we've learned through this last 12-month period is that we can do a lot more on this kind of technology than we had ever imagined. Just think about what we're doing right now. Typically, this would have been in a classroom, only people limited there. And today, we're able to talk sitting in our home offices to people all over the world. And actually, most of the questions, I was going to bring this up because most of the questions are coming from Asia. <laughs> so, now, um, it's, yeah, it's hugely interesting. Now, does that mean that uh, we can continue to work like this only? And of course, the answer to that is no, because, you know, you do lose certain things. For example, I think you lose in terms of building a longstanding culture and meeting new people and so on. There are some things that only actually happen when you when you meet in person you know today you chair a board meeting like this on zoom and that's fine it works very well we're all used to now doing it but then you click it off and it's gone and in a normal board meeting you would actually sit around outside and you'd probably have some fresh thoughts and and those conversations are as important as what happens in the board meeting so i think that the world will come back to some happy mean in between you know, I, I think that we'll have to come back. We won't go back to what we used to do earlier in terms of the level of travel, but we'll find a new mean. Yeah. So we have questions like, so asking about whether you invest in Nigeria. There is a question from, by Subhadra from Chennai um, on how private equity performed in emerging markets versus developed markets. Is is your firm, do, does your firm have experience with that? Do you invest also in emerging markets, uh, especially like, oh. you know, Africa or, or Asia? No, our, our firm is principally focused, our global dollar fund is uh, focused on investments which are centered either in the US or in Europe. Now, bear in mind that those are global companies, so they may have operations all over the world, including Asia and Africa. But we don't invest directly through CDNR in either of those geographies. We do have a partnership with a, a, a fund in India called Kedara, uh, which invests in Indian companies. And that um, uh, it has also done extremely well. Uh, it's it's in just raising its third fund. We've been a partner of theirs for about eight years. Uh, and I think uh, that too has weathered the COVID crisis extremely well. Okay. And there is Ari who's asking, um, given how crazy the valuations are on the stock markets, why aren't you just basically selling everything in an IPO and, and running away? Well, you know, uh, the point is this, our, our job is not to sell and run away. Our job is to actually create sustainable value creation. Uh, and I think when we take on an investment, that takes time. You know, we have a certain thesis and we need time to develop and deploy that thesis, whether it be in terms of growth or in terms of cost reduction or whatever. So now 
Is it a good time to exit certain investments? Yes, of course. And I'm sure everybody and we will also try and take advantage uh, of the public markets to do so. But I think, you know, one has to be very clear that you have created enough value inside the company to access the public markets. Public markets are intelligent investors. Yeah, thank you. Um, we are about halfway, so let me take this opportunity to, to welcome uh, those who have just joined us to today's leadership in extraordinary, extraordinary times. I seem to have difficulty saying that word. Um, today's topic is, is private equity and uh, the contribution to the, to the economy, and especially during the COVID crisis. And I'm Ludwig Falipu, a professor of financial economics at Oxford University Said Business School, and my guest today is Vindi Banga from the private equity firm Clinton, Dubilier and Rice. Um, so I will have to, um, <laughs> to move to the early part at one point. We keep on talking about the good part, <laughs> but uh, we'll get there. Um, I have um, some questions on ESG and the like, so, so that, that will come, as at, at, I think, at, at, at the end pretty naturally. Um, so, so, so how about we... we um, I take one more question from uh, Vitiya in Singapore about uh, your thoughts on the competition and interaction between SPACs and private equity firms? Well, look, uh, we've all watched um, the, the raising of uh, so many SPACs. Uh, I think uh, we have to wait, though, and watch to see how successful they are. Uh, I mean, SPACs basically are trying to offer um, an easier route into the public markets uh, for businesses. Uh, I, I think we have to wait and watch. I mean, um, you know, it's it's very early to judge uh, what the real potential of the SPACs will be. A lot of capital has been raised right now. Very little has been deployed. So there, there is a question from, from Germany by Alexander, who's related, I think, to what we just talked about. So let's, let's do that one and then we'll move on to, to, to the more controversial uh, Aspect. So he says, in times of, of crisis, you need extreme speed of action. And then he, he says, isn't it your experience that in founders, startup companies, um, you, would, you would go faster than, than if you have an established PE firm uh, finance company in, with, with respect to, to, to the speed and agility? I, I think the two uh, cases are very different. You know, uh, yes, of course, founders and startup uh, can be very quick, uh, but they also benefit from being supported by the appropriate venture capital firms because the venture capital firms have the benefit of, of many, many startups, of many having seen many founders, of seeing many situations. So those firms benefit from those type of partnerships or support from venture capital firms. And, and yes, they are agile. Of course, they have to be. In fact, most founders and startups, as you all know, pivot through maybe two or three times before they discover, you know, a successful direction. So, so, so moving on now to, to, to the second aspect of, of what we wanted to do today, um, as you may have noticed, private equity firms do not have a particularly splendid public image. And what we've described so far uh, is extraordinary, right? Everybody should love private equity and embrace private equity as a form of ownership. And, and yet, that's not quite what we see uh, in the media. In fact, there was a recent Channel 4 program uh, talking about the private equity sector in the UK that was pretty bleak and very negative. And, um, and that's quite typical. You open a newspaper, it's, it's usually to, 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 to turn um, like 
a negative story. It looks like no one is denying, or maybe some people don't realize enough what you just said. So that, that is possible that there may not be enough communication about that. But I think most people agree with everything you've said so far. I think the, the point of tension is on the leverage aspect, right? In everything you just described, you described about helping companies to grow, et cetera, and, and that doesn't generate any controversy. I think the controversy comes from the fact that somehow, the, you know, there is leverage that is added to a lot of debt that is added to portfolio companies. And if things are going well and you do increase the value of companies, leverage means you will earn a lot more money, which I guess people can live with and they, they are fine with that. But the flip side of this would be if things don't go well, given the high level of debt, you don't have that much margin for error. And then any error would then just like destroy a company. And on textbook, uh, uh, you know, in principle, that shouldn't be a big deal if, if you know, if it's an economic, uh, uh, um, if it's a, if it's purely financial distress, then the practically person should just lose the control of the company. The, the, someone else is picking it up. And if the company is economically viable, they just carry on. But in practice, we see it's not what's happening. Um, and the companies may be forced to shut down. Uh, there is like tons of examples like Toys R Us, et cetera, where it looks like the, the company was maybe uh, viable uh, economically, but it is the leverage put on by practical firms that killed it. Um, and then that means lots of people that already don't earn much money, that whose situation is financially fragile, that then become in uh, tremendous distress and are kind of a collateral victim of private equity. And I think this is where the controversy comes from, is that people don't deny anything of what we've just said in the first half, but they have an issue with why is it you take this leverage bet on this and at the cost of the society picking up the pieces if it doesn't go, go well and you picking up the reward if it is going well. Look, I think every company, whether public or private, uses leverage. Uh, it's a question of judgment as to what is the level of leverage that an individual asset can support. And that's a judgment that public companies make as private companies make. Every businessman makes that judgment, even a founder. So I think the first point is to be very thoughtful about the amount of leverage you place on an investment. And that depends a little bit on the business, the market, the volatility in that industry, the competitive dynamics and the opportunity for growth. So all of those need to be taken into account. Now, coming to the question of what happens when companies run into difficulty. Look, business will, you know, business uh, uh, does run into difficulty for sure. Walking away from a company uh, in my book, it's not an option. It's certainly not an option for CDNR. Why? Well, first of all, you lose your investment. But that's one issue. The bigger issue is your reputation. And that's what Ludo is talking about. You know, our reputation is the currency with which we are able to source new deals. And that's particularly because more than two thirds of our deals are in partnership with the buyer or the seller. And therefore, actually, where we have business challenges. What, what do you mean it's in partnership with, with a seller? How, how does that work? So let's say um, there is a company that wants to divest an asset. They could either divest that asset to us in one go. Typically, those tend to be non-core assets, right? And when they're non-core assets, they have often been starved of capital, starved of operating talent, starved of growth and initiatives. So if, if a, a company sells a non-core asset like that, let's say it realizes a value of 100. 
On the other hand, if they decide to keep a share of that and partner with us, and they hand over the operational responsibility to us and exit in a second stage, then typically they would make two or three times their money. That's been our experience. But why, so why, hmm? why do you give them that, right? Because you're doing all the work and you're just giving them, you know, this. Is no, it because I, then you can buy it for a lower price? Or well, and, 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 and I have never heard of that, actually. So and I would also expect you to be one of the only one to do it. I, I don't think it's that common. Well, actually, our history is very much in this. In fact, one of the first deals we did like this way back, I'm now probably talking 30 years ago, 35 years ago, was when we bought uh, Lexmark out of IBM. And at the time, the typewriters and the mainframe computers used to be sold by the same sales force, and that didn't make sense. So we actually stepped in and helped IBM carve out the typewriter division, and we had to stand up the whole division with a separate sales force, etc. And IBM kept a stake in Lexmark. That's one example of a partnership deal. And, and in our history, we probably got more, as I said, more than two thirds. But you again, see, you, asked, Ludo, you asked, why do we do it? Why do we do it? Actually, there's a very good reason. When you do a partnership deal, you firstly are hopefully able to invest at a more attractive price. Yeah, because it's not being sold in an auction and the seller is thinking much more about, hey, I might be able to get 10 percent more today in an auction, but I might be able to get two or three times my money if I keep 40 percent, transfer the ownership to this private equity firm, which will be focused on that asset, help it grow, help it revive. And then we exit together. So yeah. that's one reason. The second reason is that when you're in carve outs, there's a lot of activity in the carve out. You know, you have to create a new sales force. You might have to change supply chain arrangements, etc. And when you do that, if you're in partnership, you can do it in a more coordinated way. Otherwise, the risk of transition could be quite high. Yeah, no, I, I had uh, never heard of, of 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 that approach. Actually, would you would you say you and it's making sense that you can then get a lower price and you avoid an auction? I think, especially nowadays where everything goes through an auction, it is probably a very good idea. Um, and and. But but you seem to be the only firm to do that, right? Well, uh, I wouldn't say we're the only firm, but what I would say is that the vast majority of our transactions come that way. And yeah. and that's a, I, I believe it's really important. And that plays back to what we were saying earlier. That is why it is so important that we are very thoughtful about our reputation. Our Our objective when we invest is to create sustainable value. And we must ensure that we do that with our partners in particular. Um, still on this topic, there was Louis from London who was asking, I, I, I thought about asking that earlier actually, how does the interaction between the operating partners and the management team works? In a sense, it feels like a bit duplicating, right? So there is a management team that's supposed to manage and then you have your own operating partners. How, how then does that work? Well, Louis, that's a really good question. And I often get asked that. It's actually quite straightforward. Look, our job is not to manage the company. There's a management to do that, right? Our job is to support the management, but first of all, to make sure we have the best management and then support them to really get on with the job. And we can help them because we have seen many situations like this before. We have looked at different industries. We have looked at different geographies. So we can actually uh, help them see what they may or may not be able to see on their own. Think about an analogy 
of a coach and a captain in a in a in a uh, a sport field that's it the coach doesn't play the game he's not on the field but he's very much there to think strategy to be a brainstorming partner with the team and to help them become a better team that's our job i see i like that analogy um if we go back to 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 leverage and i just say one other thing you know yeah. before we leave that topic uh we have today uh i would say probably about 40 operating partners or operating advisors in the firm and most of them in fact all of them not most all of them have had very successful careers in in whatever they did earlier they are at a stage where they actively choose this role to be a coach they actually don't wish to be a ceo anymore they've been yeah. there done that got the t-shirt and now um, it's about helping and supporting people energizing them helping them achieve the main source of controversy about operating partners were were about um the 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 cost and who bears it right so there is always this question on should the portfolio company pay for the operating partners in which case it is effectively the lps paying for this on top of the management fees they pay to the funds or should it be the firm paying the operating partners any well, in our firm, it, it does generate a conflict of interest right in our firm the operating partners are part of the firm cdnr just like the financial partners so you you you're paying the salary entirely Absolutely. well we don't draw a salary we you know we are partners of the firm that's it you if the, if the firm is successful you'll be successful but therefore we are very much part of the firm okay so the portfolio companies do not pick up the tabs no. okay no. so so then no. you 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 close that, that conflicts of interest but but you agree that it's not the case at all the other firms right so I I actually don't know how the other firms particularly work but I know that's the model in our firm which is that we don't uh, create a burden on the portfolio companies. Okay. Quite and going, going back to to the leverage uh, I guess so so the controversies uh, that that we've seen especially during the covid crisis that that so these companies that were owned by particularly had a lot of leverage a lot of them were retailers that everybody knew etc et so they were brands people know and sometimes loved um and then comes the covid and then they are you know running out of of money pretty quickly and then they turn to the government and say well can you help us out and then there was this controversy which is well if you hadn't put so much debt on them to begin with you wouldn't need so much bailout from the government so is it again a case of you know a famous sentence capitalism for the rich communism for 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 the poor like once you're in trouble then it's the taxpayer who has to bail you out any any thoughts on that Well I think that the governments all over the world have been very thoughtful about how to help business through this crisis and I'm glad that they have actually not followed any criteria on what is the source of ownership rather they have focused on the sustainability of business and when you see for example uh, many of them have tried to protect employment through either the furlough kind of scheme that was used in the UK Or, or other such employment support schemes all over the world and those schemes comes with certain formulas certain norms and i believe every every firm whether you know it's owned by private equity or by venture capital or by public markets uh, should actually access that but play by the norms of that scheme and that's what's good yeah so you say it's it's good to have this this social backup for any businesses but uh 
but I, I, I guess on the upside, when companies are doing well, then then uh, they hopefully pay taxes so that they can contribute to this social uh, well, uh, safety net, right? More, more than that, I think what happens is, you know, companies that do well, and this might be taking us into the area of ESG, uh, but companies that do well, do well for a whole set of reasons. First of all, their customers are happy and their customers are doing well. Their employees have to be happy and satisfied and engaged and are therefore doing well. So companies that do well, when you create sustainable value, your whole ecosystem does well. Of course, you pay taxes, but your whole ecosystem does well. And when that happens, that's good for society. It's good for everybody. Yeah. Okay. Um, so... So again, do you think it makes a difference? Again, in theory, when when you have you know too much debt and 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 you cannot pay that debt, in principle, the equity holder is just losing its stake, and then we move on to the debt holder, and and then employment should be unaffected. So there is no need to to help the equity holder uh, in case of a downturn. Um, it happened here, and the argument often on the table was, well, the debt holder is not capable of running a company. But then if it is the case, then it looks like private equity can basically never lose because, you know, if there's a downturn, they say, look, you need to save employees. So bail me out because nobody else can run this company. And if things are going well, then they win. So, um, again, uh, I think I think typically, you know, the equity holder has the responsibility of actually finding a pathway through crisis. And that's what I was saying earlier when crises happen. The responsibility is to double down and find a solution. Now, in finding a solution, it is possible that you might want to involve other stakeholders beyond yourself. It could be the debt holders. It could be yourself by putting in more equity. It could be a constellation of these actions that you create and you try to lead a solution out of that crisis. That, I believe, is responsible management. Okay. Uh, we're getting some questions on taxes. So... Um, Anulika from London is, is saying, well, what happens if companies are not paying taxes, right? So, so private equity uh, has not been the only one to be creative to lower the tax bill. Um, others have been as well, but private equity certainly is pretty creative when it comes to uh, um, lowering the tax bill of companies. Um, and Ari is also asking whether you could comment on the, the, the tax uh, potential tax change uh, treatment of carried interest. Uh, and then maybe also the, the Biden changes and all the countries trying to, you know, make company pay taxes. Um, so, so right now it looks like a lot of companies have been avoiding uh, the, the, the tax. Look, I, I think that, again, it doesn't matter whether you're in private ownership or public market ownership. You have to pay the taxes according to the law of the land. You know, every... Every country has its tax laws. Then there are international tax laws and you have to operate under that regime. And, and that's just fair. It doesn't matter what kind of ownership you have. Now, yep. having said that, uh, what do I think about what will happen? I honestly don't know. I don't know, uh, you know what will happen to uh, the taxation of carried interest or not. My view is, look, whatever the taxes are, they have to be paid. Today, we pay all kinds of taxes. And that's going to be, you know, you have to do business under that environment. But but very still, it it is not quite that. But we are we are pretty much in a world where 
if if you're wealthy enough, you basically decide whether you want to pay taxes or not. If you're a big company, you basically decide whether you want to pay taxes or not, because you can have an aggressive tax avoidance strategy like a Starbucks and, and companies like that and effectively not paying any taxes. It's almost a choice of, of companies to decide whether they're going to pay taxes or not. We see big, large companies that say, I decided not to pay taxes by using, you know, the laws and I'm, I'm within the laws and, I, and then it, it turns out I don't pay taxes. And we see some big companies saying I could avoid taxes, but because I don't want that vis-a-vis -vis my stakeholders and my responsibility vis-a-vis -vis society, I decided to go ahead and pay taxes at, at a higher rate than I could. Well, look, I, I think this again takes us back into the area of ESG. Uh, and I think if you are interested in being a sustainable business, you have to follow not just the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law. And I think that's what responsible companies do. Do, do you see taxes being discussed much in ESG? To, to me so far, ESG often discusses like the fraction of women you have in a company. You know, what do you do vis-a-vis -vis the, maybe the environment and the carbon footprint at best? Um, that's pretty much it. Well, that's most of the topics. I, I rarely see much discussion in ESG of companies saying, We've decided to pay more taxes than we could have had because we think it's our responsibility to pay taxes. I, well, I, I've never seen that statement, but maybe I missed I it. Think, I think that in the area of G under governance, certainly uh, appropriate taxation responsibility is an important aspect of companies. And they must have a policy as to how they actually operate in different tax regimes. You are right in pointing out that international companies in particular, have to think very carefully about what is a responsible tax uh, uh, activity. Because you, you do have your shareholders, right? So if you decide to pay on more taxes, your shareholders are getting less. So uh, Anulika was uh, uh, asking again in her question, saying, well, she was she was stating in her, in her, in her question, I think rightfully, that uh, P-backed portfolio companies seem to engage significantly more uh, in non-conforming tax planning and have lower marginal tax rates than other private firms. So, well, uh, I, I don't know. I can't, as I said, I can't speak for the industry. I can just talk about our firm. And I would tell you that we are, of course, very thoughtful, but extremely responsible about how we approach the subject of taxation for all our companies. Okay. Um, and so, and so if there is a change on, on carried interest tax, you, you don't think it will lead some practically professionals to move uh, houses to other places and things like that? It's a threat. Look, I mean, you, you can't change your business model or your life just because of taxes. You know, how do you do that? You can't do that. But I think at a different level, and, and again, this is taking us into the space of ESG. I, I think that, you know, one has to realize that um, as a company, you don't only have a shareholder. You have multiple stakeholders. The best companies in history have been companies that have always actually taken care of all their stakeholders, their customers, their employees, their supply chain, their extended supply chain, the regulators everybody those are the companies that actually command the highest multiples in any industry they operate in now there is a reason for that and that is why esg is good for business you know esg is not something that you have to do esg is something that you must do and you must do it 
because it's good for business. Your employees want it. Your consumers want it. Your customers want it. Your governments want it. So at this, this is, I mean, it's non-negotiable in my view. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm, I, I'm, I'm skeptical about the win-win uh, doctrine, so but that would be for another uh, uh, a podcast. I'm, 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 I'm happy if people are, are more responsible. I'm, I'm, I'm not quite sure it's as simple as saying I'm. If I am responsible, then I will do well. But uh, I think people need to go beyond that and and being much more proactive uh, in 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 their responsibilities. So. You know, right now there is some emergencies in India elsewhere. Uh, there we see, you know, the, the, the landscape in the in the UK on retail is is absolutely terrifying. Um, the, the tax issue is is a big deal. Uh, we don't collect as much taxes as as we used to on businesses. So there, there, there is quite uh, a number of things that 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 are um, red hot on on that space. T talking of which, the, the, the things stay, that are you, yeah. Go ahead. That, if you stay with that, I, I agree with you. And that's the point I meant, actually. I mean that every business person, doesn't matter which business you're in, which country you're in, you must make sure that your business engages with the society around it in a very responsible way and helps when there's a problem. Similarly, you as an individual, if you're fortunate today to have more than many others, then it's up to us to actually see how we can help. And we can help in kind, we can help in money, we can help personally. I think it's really important for business to be engaged with society. And certainly, if, you, if I again, if I come back to all the firms that I've been associated with, if I think back to my corporate career, Unilever was deeply in, involved with society. You know, it was the first employer to employ women in the UK. The first. And that was because the women were fundamentally more productive on the shop floor. And therein lies the, the kernel of, let's say, the responsibility doctrine in Unilever. In CDNR, we have the same philosophy. As a firm, we do what we can as a private equity firm. And through our portfolio companies, uh, we try to be as responsible that are very dear to the school is, is climate and justice, social and racial. Um, is there anything that you have observed over the last 12 months when these issues have been coming even more center place than, than they used to be? Any concrete actions that were taken at, at your firm or, or around you on, on these issues? We've been focused on these topics many years earlier. You know, we, we have not adopted ESG today. We've been actually on this journey for a very long period of time. Uh, to your specific uh, points, um, as a firm, we, of course, are very focused on inclusion, diversity, we are trying to get in people from different backgrounds uh, and try to actually assimilate them in the firm. But we can do much more through our portfolio companies. Today, our portfolio companies employ 225,000 people and have much greater impact. So we are actually focused on how our portfolio companies can have a very responsible ESG uh, um, focus. What do we do? So when we actually diligence the firms that we're going to invest in, we look at them through the ESG lens. And as soon as we've invested, within the first 100 days, we put together a very relevant ESG program for that company. As you might imagine, every company could have different focuses. Two items are always common. I would say carbon and diversity. These are common to all companies. 
But on other aspects, different companies choose other areas that might be relevant. And then we actually help them through the period of, of their investment with us to improve on the ESG plan. We think that ESG initiatives are just like growth or cost. You know, it's it adds value. And uh, I, I come back to what I said earlier. At the end of our ownership period, if we can increase the ESG embedded value in the company that we have invested in, I think we will command a better multiple on our rate. value add laid bare. Don't forget to subscribe. Congratulations on your acquisition of one more piece of knowledge. Don't forget to rate it if you liked it. Ciao, ciao.